And welcome to today's Permaculture Masterclass, where we dive deep into the many rabbit holes that permaculture opens for us. Just as the permaculture enthusiast eventually takes a PDC, the PDC graduate eventually goes deeper to levels of mastery and proficiency beyond the PDC. That's what the Masterclass is all about. I am Jesse, and I'll be hosting today's conversation, which should last about 60 to 90 minutes with space throughout for question and answers. So please send any questions to the chat, and I'll gather them up for our guests today. And today we are honored to talk with Pina Design Contest winner, Dr. Jasmine Rose Oberste, and her design partner in this project, Kia Holt. Jasmine has spent most of her life studying health of people and earth through systems, patterns, and the intersection and interplay of disciplines. Her work is part-time clinical, offering integrative medicine consultation as a doctor of East Asian and functional medicine studies, and part-time land-based, designing and leading the creation of community-based regenerative agriculture projects. In order to increase access to holistic healthcare and support the development of youth and community gardens, she works in the Three Treasures Institute nonprofit. Jasmine has studied permaculture with Brock Dolman, Kendall Dunnigan, and Eunice Neb Neves through the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center with a strong focus on social permaculture and also with Jeff Lawton with a strong focus on land-based design systems. She completed a permaculture teacher training in Spain in 2023 with Alfred Deckard, Sonita Maba, Wayu Fang, Habiba Youssef. Sorry if I got those names wrong, anybody. And we're also joined with Kia Holt, who was born and raised in the Kawichin tribe's territory. He is a father and grandfather and believes in connecting cultures through respect, honor and ceremonies, and circles. Throughout many years, he has worked with youth on pride in culture, drum and dance storytelling, sweat lodges, sports, and more. Always turning to nature for learning, teaching, healing, and understanding, and bringing back ceremony with fire, water, land, air, and environment. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Now, did I get anything wrong, or is there anything to correct in the, the bios? I think just uh, Quia Holt has a... Is a, has a it's a kui at the beginning that was missing. Yeah. Yes, beautiful. But otherwise, great. Well, thank you guys for being here so much. And Kuya Holt, you have offered to start us off with a song. So I'll let you go ahead and do that. Share anything you want to that we might need to know ahead of time. And then please, this is going to be great. I just wanted to share a, a song. It's a song for, uh, it's called Mother Earth. So this song is just to honor the environment and the earth, what it all provides us. And uh, really bring back those teachings of respect for the environment and the, the earth. So this is the, the song for, for that. <clears throat>
Thank you. That was uh, that song is called the Mother Earth, and it's a song that you know, share songs before we work with the land or take something from the land or plant something in the land. Well, we share prayers and songs before we do something, you know, with the with the earth or with the water. It's always a teaching that we always feed the earth and feed the water every every year as humans, you know, to get that way of thinking of giving back to the earth. Then uh, I think in North America, we live in a very capitalist uh, society where we, we take many, many, many things from the land resources and don't give too much back. Well, that's part of that teaching of, uh, I think that's a big part of our permaculture principles, teachings, that reciprocity. Yeah. I think that reciprocity too is, I was remembering um, when we met, I believe was at the um, council meeting in college and about protecting the forests. And I heard you speak with such love and reverence for the whole plant community, recognizing that it's alive and interrelated and that the value isn't just monetary of, we were discussing, do, how, do we want to use the forests for logging? And Quiahot spoke about how there's so much more there than just trees. The trees are beautiful, but also there's the medicine plants and you know all the animals and the insects and that you, you can't just look at that one value. So I think af after we met there, we started doing different projects with youth. Um, teaching at the Sunrise Waldorf School and, and planting trees by the river. And yeah. then, and then um, Quiaholt mentioned that he wanted to plant a garden. And I love planting gardens everywhere I can, <laughs> big and small. So I went and saw, and of course, being who you are, um, it wasn't just your own private garden. It was an idea of a community garden. And so we, um, we talked about the garden and then the bigger space of what's there, a cemetery and a sweat lodge, and there's a little playground area and kind of what the bigger vision was. And I filtered all of that through um, using the permaculture design skills that I had had into making maps and seeing how we could work with the students. Um, and then this project was born that we've been working on for, we're on our, um, I guess we're on a third year now. So we've completed two years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so great. And let me just say, thank you so much for the song. It's um, so resonant. And I think that's a, a key piece to this cultural rebirth that we're trying to do, moving from this capitalistic society back to uh, some deeper, meaningful connection that doesn't allow us to destroy the earth as we have done. To me, it seems like one of the things we lost in our indigenous roots versus this modern culture is the connection to sacred and not valuing things just for its monetary value like you're both speaking of. So thanks for uh, pointing us in that direction again. And I'll just add that I, I studied music therapy as sort of maybe a Western model of sort of there's something so sacred about music and connection and community and earth that it's just something that has always drawn me. So I've always done similar things, started groups with songs or chants or humming just to get people on the same sort of like feeling state. So once again, thank you so much. That was an absolutely beautiful song. 
And it, it's a great reminder of what we're really here to do, which is pass on the generational knowledge, you know, into the future and give back to Mother Earth. And that's why I was so attracted to permaculture. The abundance model and giving back actually allows everybody to have more. Um, so with that being said, uh, Jasmine, do you mind sort of introducing, you kind of talked about it there, but give us a sense of like how you became tied into this project and what were the context here for anybody listening is we're talking about Jasmine signed up for the Pina design contest and won. And part of that money that was, uh, sort of delivered, what went into the projects that we'll hear about today and see, but what led up to that? What led up to, before you even signed up for the design contest, weave us into that sort of position. Um, so I think um, there, a UN report came out in 2018 or 19 looking at how critical climate change is affecting us. And I decided to dive into permaculture then. I just felt like bringing more school gardening to kids, both for the practical skills of growing food and also the more heart um, reverence connection of connection, connecting with nature and the earth. Um, and so I started developing a school garden and, and it was around, um, they had a very small school garden at the Sunrise Waldorf School. It's about a seven acre campus. Um, and we developed quite a large garden, multiple gardens, actually. There's a dye garden and a, a student learning garden and a new orchard and a, a Mediterranean garden. And uh, anyway, there's an ecosystem restoration area that we've been working on. Um, so at that same time was when Quia Holt and I met. Um, and so we, we started doing different work together with um, with youth, both at Sunrise Waldorf School and in the community generally doing some tree planting by the river. Um, yeah, just different working on protecting the forest locally. Um, and then also work at Sunrise. We did a few different projects there. Um, and my vision with the school garden always was that it would be uh, that it would be a mother garden that that we have a lot of resources there, skilled parents and um, and I just felt like if if the garden fulfilled its its vision, then there would be there would be plants to share, and that the kids part of the middle school curriculum is to be of service in the community, and so to take that and support the creation of community gardens. But I didn't know how that would look until Quiahot said he wanted to make a garden there, and it mm. seemed like a perfect connection. Um, and we didn't have any funding at the time, but we just started. <laughs> We're like, we found an area. I invited the teachers if they wanted to join, and they all they all did. Um, and then we got the first the first uh, fall that we were working on it. Um, we we did a joint project with the middle school students at Sunrise, and then um, all, uh, students that were in their second year of becoming teachers at Vancouver Island University, and a few mm -hmm. homeschool high school students. So it was a, a wide range of ages, which was really neat to come together. Um, and, and we um, got a small grant through the Vancouver Island University to help pay for the fencing. Um, but that was it. We didn't have posts and we didn't have anything else. So we just scheduled some field trips and started clearing the space for the garden. Um, and then soon after found out that we got a grant from the Jane Goodall Foundation, um, mm -hmm. which has supported us for numerous years. They're wonderful, generous and, and share the vision. Um, and so that paid for um, fencing tea posts and some soil amendment compost. Um, and then we got uh, a beautiful nursery up on Denman Island, one of the islands near us, um, was doing their first year of donating $1,000 worth of edible trees and bushes. And uh. we, we won that. So then we're like, okay, we can expand the annual vegetable garden to include 
a more perennial food forest. Um, and then I heard about the, the um, Pina um, uh, contest. And so I got to work and like actually really did the work of taking the things that we'd been talking about, putting it into a permaculture um, design. Um, and we were, we were so grateful. It really launched, it gave us, you know, money isn't everything. Like there was a lot of community support, but having those resources allowed us to buy, you know, much more cost-effective um, mulch and sorry, yes. mulch and um, soil amendment and whatever we needed, we could just, we could get in it. And um, with that, so it made it, it allowed us to move forward quickly, which was yes. great. But I think it's important that we started regardless of having the money in place. Like we just shared the vision, thought it yeah. was worthwhile and, and just, started it yeah yeah and then resources came as you needed them and as connections were made yeah what about you Kwiwa Holt I'm sorry if I keep getting that wrong um tell me your history like were you already connected to that middle school were you already doing garden sort of design I know you work with youth a little bit so how do you tie into this before meeting Jasmine um, we were doing a lot of work planting trees uh, along the rivers and uh, before the before the garden, because we, you know, the, our river our river resources were getting pretty. A uh, lot of silt was being built up in the in the river grounds from the just from all the logging up top, and a lot of the silt has been moving into the river. So started working with the rivers a few years back. And part of that was planting trees to keep the banks stabilized and shade trees for the salmon and then i remember when jasmine joined we planted some um, berry bushes down at the river for the just to feed the, the houseless too the homeless they're all having camps along the river there so well let's start planting some berry bushes then they can just have something to yeah to eat so that was a uh, part of it too when we we're doing that work and then and it led into uh, what we're at today, the garden and the orchard. And the kids cleared that whole land area behind my place where the sweat lodge was the first, one of the first big works mm -hmm. up our way. And a lot, of the, a lot of our land is being overrun by ivy now. It's uh, introduced um, plant species and it's really causing havoc with our our um, trees all along the river and a lot of the trees are toppling over, being smothered by the ivy. So the kids cleared a lot of the ivy for for our lodges to was was built. Hmm. And then we kinda of went into the vegetable garden after that and then mm -hmm. in the orchard. Yeah. A lot of resource people and I always mention this um about inviting the schools to our place on Samnat Village. And where we the reserve, you know, the reserve system is a is an introduced government policy where we live on reserves. And uh, a lot of non-native people never ever ventured onto the reserve and I wanted to break that break that um, break that circle of so inviting people onto our village, and uh, 
I always say it's, it's not too bad on the reserve because it's as people think it is. <laughs> people think uh, the worst sometimes of what the reserve is all about, where we mm. live, and yeah, it isn't. It's a very spiritual place. Living on our village, you know, we have a lawn house that there's a lot of ceremonies there. Pretty all ceremony on the village sites around um, Vancouver Island here. Pretty well every weekend, you can go to a ceremony somewhere on a village somewhere. Wow. And so that's part of that, uh, keeping that spirituality alive and well and connection to the land. And so that was a big part of inviting the community into into our community. Yeah. Because we, we do live in two worlds, you know. Growing up, there's always two worlds, the city city limits, and there's the village limits. I always went back and forth all the time. <laughs> that felt really, when I we moved here, uh, my daughter and I, about eight years ago, and it felt really um, stark when I uh, see how there's, there's um, First Nations um, reservation, I guess it's called um, reservations in, in the States, yes. I think. Yes. So same thing, Native American Reservation. It's a First Nations reserve, and it's intermingled with the city, but it's very in the the valley. But it's it feels very segregated, and and it just felt strange to me to be you know not addressing the, it because it didn't feel healthy, I guess. So it felt like a really wonderful opportunity where you know students often in middle school will maybe go do a day of service somewhere but this is really different where they actually build a relationship with people and place and and trees and you know that it's it's an ongoing relationship where um yeah some of the kids i guess it will be their third year this fall when we do another field trip um mm. yeah so it's it's a different experience yeah and what was your familiarity if any um, with permaculture before you met Jasmine? Is that something that, you know, your folks, the people that you grow up with, the people in your city are familiar with? How is that looked upon? Do people like the general idea or is it just sort of nobody really knows about it? Well, my my grandparents, great-grandparents time, it was pretty familiar, permaculture. And I think with the residential schools, there's a real big break from, the, from that for 100 years where our people didn't work the lands. Yeah. So now we're getting back to, you know, working the lands and planting. And I remember with my granduncle, he lived next door to us. He, as kids, he'd always get us to do the burn, you know, the burn, the, you know, the controlled land. Yeah. He'd, uh, he'd give us a piece of roll of straw and he'd light it up and we'd, we'd line us up and he'd, we'd light the, Light the grounds, and then he would go tell us where to go stand on the other side, yeah. and put the fire out. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. <laughs> That'd be fun, man. <laughs> that was, uh, so that was permaculture in itself. Learning Absolutely. that, grand uncle next door, and and now that's I hear people are starting to do that again now. Those burn, yeah. those burn. Uh, what do they call that? They do that. Can Controlled burns. Controlled burning, yeah. People are talking about doing that now, control burning for, oh, that's what we used to do as kids. Yeah. <laughs> so permaculture isn't, 
Well, it was familiar with me, but but I just didn't know it as called permaculture back then. Yeah, yeah naturally. We just, yeah, we just did it. What our grand uncle showed us, what it told us to do. Yeah, and that was permaculture. Was it your grandparents? There's there are some really old trees that that I guess a lot of families or most families had orchards. So when you were little, you talked about having fruit trees that are now now not productive anymore, but there's they're overgrown plums and I forget what else is back there. Plums and pears and apples and cherries. Hmm. Every village had orchards and gardens and yeah. like we had a big break in our family system with the residential school and so there's a lot of old orchards in every village. Yeah. It's just a matter of revitalizing those orchards again and yeah. Uh, reconnecting reconnecting to the land. That's right. Yeah. And those the seeds are there, right? Like the I always think of those old orchards as like that's the seed bank, you know, you can do, still go take from that and repropagate it all and start it all up again. So thank God for our ancestors thinking about those things and putting their their labor into the land so we could benefit from it. Well, let's jump into uh, visuals because Jasmine, you put together a bunch of slides. So it's going to be really a, a great way to see the project instead of just talking about it. And then feel free, both of you to just talk in any direction you want as the slides are on. No sort of there's no time frame that we have to be done by or anything. Okay. Are you going to switch to my screen share? Or do I need to do anything? Yeah, no, you're good. Uh, I think you just have to slide up to the first one because okay. it says next step. Okay. But I see it. It looks good. This is an aerial photo of the Cowichan River um, just downhill from the site that we're working on, which is um, we call it Cohemen Community Garden, and it's the traditional village site. Cohemen. Co that's us. <laughs> and um, this is a little bit wordy, but I feel like it's important because it addresses, especially the first part. So part of our goal was to create opportunities for action-oriented reconciliation work for students and teachers mm. nearby schools to be of service in support of local First Nations community and food sovereignty with field trips every month or two throughout the school year. Um, and then additionally, we wanted to create community garden that would um, support the surrounding families with nutritious food and meaningful outdoor connection, food forest. Um, we'd like to help renovate the playground and also the cemetery um, didn't have a sign and we're planning to add some flowers as well. And the, there was a sweat lodge down by the edge of the river that had gotten flooded and had um, more foot traffic going through the area and Cuyahoga wanted to move it up um, up to a different location. So um, this is a, I Debbie Cleohalt can talk about this sign a little bit. That's a sign that our, our grandchildren made. Oops. All living things, plants, animals, birds, oh. insects. It's got all the different religious Symbols, not all religious symbols, but all religion is one. It is, uh, it is a humans that separate ourselves from the who's right and who's wrong in a lot of different things. We're just trying to build unity within the oneself, and the family, the community, and the environment. Our elders always say that whatever we do to nature, we do to ourselves. 
It's part of the teachings of the Natsumash Kualawan. Jesse, is it fine? Yeah. Connection? It's fine now, yeah. Yep, I lost you for a second, but we got most of it, I think. Okay. Um, so the, I just wanted to give a little um, context of where we are on the planet. Yeah. Uh, from the, if we look at bioregions, we're in Cascadia, the Pacific Northwest. It's traditionally been a temperate rainforest, very rainy most of the year. Although um, in recent years, the summers have been getting drier and a little hotter. So it's moving, shifting more towards a Mediterranean type climate. Um, mm. We are in the country now currently known as Canada, and we're on the West Coast where that little red heart is um, in the province of British Columbia, on the island of Vancouver Island, um, in the su southern eastern coast. We're in the Cowichan Valley, and um, this is our watershed of the Cowichan Lake, which um, travels along the Cowichan River east into Cowichan Bay. And you can see mm. the city of Duncan over near the coast. Yeah. Um, and some beautiful historic photos. I think it's important to acknowledge that the um, the land here is completely unseated. There was stolen. In other words, there was no treaties signed. Um, there was uh, a governor in the 1800s that basically just stole a massive portion of the island and gave it to the ENN Railway, which then sold off large parcels to mostly Scottish, Euro European, a lot of them I think were Scottish at the time, but other European settlers, which were then subdivided again and sold privately, um, but it's all um, stolen property. It's not, yeah. it's, there was no agreements. So this is um, fishing. Fishing, yeah, fishing weir. They would uh, be a controlled um, fishing. They'd, you'll see that there's a gateway there that allows let the female fish go through in some of the oh. males. So it isn't as, as you figure it'd be blocking the whole river off and let no fish go by, but it was, it was controlled. Uh, we always made sure that the females went through so that it's all sustainable. That's a fishing yeah. way. Wow. How long would those stay in the river uh, in terms of years? before they're replaced or removed or relocated? Oh, just when the fish would start moving, they would put them up and then, of course, take, the river them, back down. take them back down before the river came up in the wintertime. Okay. Wow. Those are the lawn houses that our people lived in. And this is the traditional territory that's outlined in that kind of magenta color. So we're on Vancouver Island on the left. The water is white in this picture for some reason, but it includes all the way over to the right side is Vancouver, uh, just north of here. And then all these islands in between, many of them are on the Canadian side, but I labeled them. So there's Galliano, well, starting from the top, Valdez, Thetis, Penelicut, Galliano, Maine, Saturna, Pender, and Salt Spring Islands. And on the US mm -hmm. side, also Walton and Stewart Island. It's quite a large territory, approximately um, 376,000 hectares or 929,000 acres. Wow. And if we look, um, this is the this is Duncan area. This is a super zoomed in. And the gray area is where the current Cowichan Tribes area is. And to put that in context of the previous map, um, there's the, you know, in magenta is the, the traditional territory. And then this little tiny gray insert is where the cur current tribes are. I think it's less than 
0.6% or something. And although some of the village sites were included on the reserve, almost none of the hunting and gathering and, and seasonal village sites. So there's, there's a huge, obviously, disruption to the way of life. Um, we thought it was going to be an easy thing to uh, put an orchard on our village, but space is pretty limited now with our the downsizing of the village over the last 150 years. And, and so yeah, it would be good to well, be easy to find a spot for an orchard, but it, it wasn't. We kept on moving today. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those permaculture <laughs> wow. principles receiving feedback and adjusting, you know, we had, we, we had a vision and then it turned out, you know, this nephew or niece was planning on putting a house there. We kept, yeah, just kind of adjusting to what's possible with what's there because it's, it's such a small area compared to what was traditionally the living space. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so the first project we worked on, we thought we'd dive right into the garden, but it turned out, um, well, we did actually do some space clearing and then, and worked on the sweat lodge. Um, so I, this is what Quiahot was talking about, the ivy covering the trees. And so the kids came and they cut the ivy at the base of the trees and mm. and then also cleared mass. They, the, I was really impressed seeing them creatively figure out how to deal with it. The ivy was perhaps up to our knees. I mean, it was it was thick and tall. Wow, and yeah. They figured out that if they got in a line and cut at the base of it, they could roll it up like a carpet. And they just yeah. kept cutting and rolling and cutting and roll. They just made this up and then cooperatively picked up these big logs and carried them up the hill and put them in a big pile. It was really <laughs> good job, kids. <laughs> this is um, Quiahold and my stepdad and my daughter and I went up to harvest willow um, for the uh, for the sweat lodge. Do you want to say anything about it? Or? Yeah, I just wanted to say something about the ivy. Yeah, yeah, I can go back. Yeah, the ivy there, the one elder sharing with me that uh, saying to clear as much as we can from the rivers because what happens is that the flies will land and nest on the ivy and whatever's on the ivy, you know, the little insects, I don't know, they always go to the river before nightfall and they they fly above the top of the water, then that's where the the minnows, the fry will jump for the flies. And right. when they when they eat the flies and they, they get poisoned from whatever's on the ivy. Because oh. it's, it's a new species that's uh, introduced into our environment. And so for quite a for quite a while I would try to clear as much ivy as I can and but six months later it's pretty well you can clear it and Six months later, it's straight, right back up again. Of course, phenomenally, a few inches a day, or I think an inch a day. <laughs> but the wow. area we cleared with all the kids has stayed pretty well cleared. Yeah. Hopefully, we can expand yeah. that this year. I'm just taking notes of what <laughs> projects to do this year. Oh, right. <laughs> So um, yeah, here's harvesting the willow, and then um, this is middle school students uh, using whittling and peeling, peeling it. So that's bark, mm -hmm. right? And then um, and they put the willow, they tie the willows into a dome shape. And we put blankets and tarps over top. Oops, that was a taking a break. It was cold and had a little fire. And here's the completed structure. Oh, cool. 
in the vegetable garden, which is mostly annual plants. Um, this was the, I mentioned the first grant we got from the Jane Goodall Foundation. And this was the first day the kids came in and, um, well, actually I think it's our second trip. They helped clear it and they measured the edges. There's a lot of applied math, which I think is one of the neat things of, of um, you know, that, that's come in of figuring out how to make a right angle when there's no straight line already was, yes. uh, you know, one of the kids, oh, easy, three, four, five triangle. And they, they just did it. And yes. then later, um, we'll go forward. Yeah, here they are measuring edges, deciding we had to be a certain distance from the phone, the pole, you know, electrical wire pole down there, 10 feet. 10 feet. So they had to figure out what shape to make and, um, that here we, I guess this was actually before the last picture, but um, using um, posts to figure out where the rows would be. And and mm. we dug up a lot of native organ, not a lot, but there was some organ grape that we dug up and brought down the hill and planted in the area that we had cleared the ivy. Mm. So relocating it. And then this was another, another math thing of um, we used, I'm forgetting the author's name of the intelligent gardener, gardener but he has an organic all around blend that has, um, uh, we used seed seed meal, um, alfalfa seed meal, and and some other nutrients. So they figured it out, and then figured out how much they had to add per square foot, depending oh, on. How, so yeah, they figured out how much to make and how much to put on, and um, and this is the beginning of growing. That's um, one of Holt's granddaughters in the front, and my daughter in the back, watering some of the plants and watering cans half the size of her. <laughs> <laughs> And one of uh, one of the other big things I forgot to mention that the the um, Pina grant or contest prize money helped um, hugely. About actually about two fifths of it went towards putting in professional drip irrigation, which because we're having yes. these really hot dry summers, and so we have that paid for irrigation in both the orchard, which is in a different location, and this garden, um, mm. and it's efficient, so it's not wasting water, and it and it just kept everything alive and thriving. So you can see that those lines there. Um, and we have a great, um, a local irrigation company, Warmland Irrigation, that's um, supported a lot of the work that I've done by giving us mostly at cost, I think very discounted um, installations to support the project. Wow, fantastic. Beautiful harvest. This is the first year, I guess we've now had two summers of harvest. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to talk about how it's harvested or who it's feeding or. I think there's, um... 12 houses up our neighborhood area. And the last harvest we did, got my grandkids, we just bagged up all the cherry tomatoes and had some peas and a little bit of lettuce and put them all in baggies. And I said, oh, go bring them to all the houses. So they went and brought all the, what we harvested to all the houses up our, our way. And so that's what we do when we harvest. We just distribute it to all the, household areas up our, our way. Which are yeah. uncles and aunts, but it's all, all um, relatives in that area, family. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And we talk about food miles with food conversations. Think about how few food miles are involved in that uh, exchange there. That's fantastic. I think that's the end of the vegetable garden section. Well, it looks really great. And I want to talk real quickly on was part of your plan with working with middle schoolers to do that sort of like in the field math or like having to, you know, use the curriculum from school, but out in real world sort of settings. Was that kind of part of the idea? 
that was the hope, but I didn't know how the math would come in. I know in Waldorf teaching, they although students think they may be doing one subject, they try to incorporate three different ways of learning at a time. So if they're doing math, they'll do uh, something musical and something artistic, or if they're doing yeah. French, similar. Um, so I think the teachers may have that kind of vision. And I, I assumed it would happen, but I didn't know how. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I would have learned math much better if it would have been in building things or, you know, making a garden or something. <laughs> I wanted to um, point out, this is Cam McDonald, who's a professional local farmer. He's had a farm, uh, a table at the local farmer's market and and for, um, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 years or something. And um, I think this is one of the key parts of how, how the project's been successful is Cam volunteered um, to come whenever he was planting things for his own farm, he would plant an extra tray of things. No, he knew what, how big oh. the garden was and he has the experience um, to know like uh, much more experience than I do of how to be on that schedule. So that when, if something started, you know, going to flower, he already had stuff ready. He knew what was, you know, he knows when to harvest it when I, I might wait a little too long. And so he's, uh, he's just been an invaluable part of particularly the vegetable garden and, um, we would love to replicate this or support other people replicating this kind of model. And I think having a local farmer that's like a mentor and kind of sponsor of the, of the project is really helpful. So mm -hmm. we're yeah. super awesome. grateful. And then um, at the, around this time when we were, um, I think uh, the spring of our first gardening season um, was when we found out that we won the grand prize, which we were so grateful and excited. <laughs> Um, and then this is the food forest. So we really started this last spring, I guess. No, plant, we planted in the fall, so um, a year ago. So, okay. um, and then as I mentioned, this is Tree Eater Farm and Nursery on Denman Island. And um, this part has been a really neat collaboration with um, the uh, the Eco Village in Shawnigan Lake. They do a permaculture mm. course every summer with um, Brandy Gallagher, who's who's the main I think head teacher and Starhawk comes and teaches and yes. sometimes there's other teachers this last summer, Penny Livingston came and Brandon Bauer from Salt Spring, great teachers. So um, the first year, um, one of the groups, they did their project on the food forest, which was an area that I had read about food forests, but I didn't have any experience designing them or, so I, I was really grateful for the support. I was looking for some kind of community support and then they just said, hey, can we come? It was great, you know, when you like envision it and then someone, yeah shows up so on the left that's the that's the group from the eco village permaculture course from two years ago mm. actually both both sides so they came and they helped um put up fencing and do the, do the design oops i guess i'm going ahead of myself do the design and um and then quinn who's in the front there on the on the left um he's from portland but he has he stayed longer and he came and helped out at one of our field trips with middle school students and mm. then he came back again more recently um again uh to follow up, so it's it's been great having that collaboration. Um, and then here is uh, an, working with an A-frame. So we measured out most of the land is kind of flat, but there's a bit of a slope in one area. Mm. So we we talked about slow it, spread it, sink it with water, hoping that you know in the long run it could be independent of irrigation. And they um, measured swales with that A-frame and um, dug them, and uh, we we laid out the potted plants. Feel free to jump in if you. Mm -hmm. um, there's some blueberries planted. Ah. And again, um, 
here's this the most recent uh, field trip we did was at the end of last school year and um and here they are pounding post in to put in this uh arch that uh mm. we're gonna plant i think some grapes on and you can see in the background kind of there's um some on the right side we have a area of plums and on the left there's an area of um apples different kinds of apples and then um, on the right side in the front, we have blueberries and, and other. And so at the beginning, we just planted rows of plant of fr same fruit trees. It felt a little bit monocropping kind of not, but it was in lines, which is really helpful for the irrigation. And then in the spring field trip, um, the kids interplanted with bushes and um, and strawberries, different levels of, you know, more slowly evolving um, into a food forest. Yes. Yeah. Um, that was a video, but it's not moving. Um, also, I just wanted to mention that the last, after doing the permaculture teacher training course, they talked, we talked a lot about how to learn, how to teach each other and not just be um, lecturing. And so we did a neat thing where we broke up into pairs and each pair um, chose or picked a card that had a permaculture principle on it. And then they mm. discussed it. If they had questions, they could ask. And then they gave an example either in this garden or in their lives and, and taught each other about it. So that was a neat evolution. Yeah. And the cemetery, um, we want uh, this year to plant some flowers. But um, if you want to talk a little bit about the sign. Uh, this was a sign that we just put up. That was part of the, the neighborhood designing is to uh, beautify the cemetery. Like it's just below our place there. And uh, a couple of friends, Lyndon and Rupert, worked on the sign. And plus my brother-in-law, Joe, designed the designer, the owl. And there's a whole story about the owl in, in our culture about that. And so the Shmokwela is the name of the cemetery. And uh, we just we planted some bulbs on the outside of it last year, so we, we plan to do another bulb planting on the inside this fall. So that's part of the uh, beautifying the cemetery area. Yeah. I wanted to put planters on the posts too, eventually. Yeah. Yep. And this was shared with um, the group from the Eco Village. I, I just appreciated. Sometimes we tend to focus on the financial capital or value um, but this project especially, I think, has so many different kinds of value, including cultural and spiritual, experiential, intellectual, you know, the living world. Um, I don't know that it actually has that much financial value, but um, material, <laughs> material and social. So, yeah, it was it was helpful to see that kind of reiteration. Yeah. Um, and just looking at areas for improvement, if I just brought up the using small and slow solutions and applying self-regulation and accepting feedback. Um, yeah, we were just looking at how can we redesign, especially because the annuals are replanted every year. Um, one, one thing we had talked about was maybe um, focusing on things that could be harvested in the fall that could be frozen well or made into soup that we could do like a work day and you know, do a lot of food prep in one of the local um, commercial kitchens and then people could fill their freezers um, you know, to have food in the winter when, because our growing season is, um, it's more longer than a lot of Canada, but it's shorter than a lot of the world, you know, that's closer. Mm. To so to be able to have um, fresh food in the freezer for the winter months could be a nice thing to evolve into if we, if we plan that. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think that's, well, 
next steps would be some of what I said. And also we've talked about doing something larger and more public, um, making a larger food forest that's more publicly accessible, especially in light of mm. how many um, people are, don't have homes and are living near the river. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah, something down there, right? Yeah. Yeah, and what, what do you think is maybe the limiting factor in putting in another uh, food forest? Would it be like labor or people to maintain it or access to materials? What might get in the way? Or where could you use help? Well, I, I, I am a. I feel like the research. I feel like we just have to. Um, I don't actually feel like there's obstacles. I think we 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 have to find a place, I guess. And I feel like that will evolve as we as we look. But I think there's some options. But the, the conversations have to go at their own pace. Sometimes right. I think one of the things I've learned is to not like push forward in a kind of Western way, but to like allow the relationships and the conversations to happen and, and see what grows out of those. But I think mm -hmm. once we find a space and share the vision, I feel like the local community and maybe the local governments, yes, financial would be helpful. It would be helpful if, if there was funds to actually pay someone to kind of maintain it, I think in an ongoing organized way to make, to organize harvests and to just, um, yeah, uh, that would be helpful. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, so go ahead. space down by our gymnasium, that would be a really great place to do a community garden, mm. kind of right in the hub of the community there. Yeah. And we'd like to work with more schools also. Like it, it would be nice to have at least three different schools in the area coming, um, coming or maybe more, you know, that there could be kind of yeah. an open invitation to schools that want to come do field trips help it's it's amazing how much work gets done e even when they're half-hearted about it they still get so much done and and a lot of them are wholehearted about it but even what regardless you know when you get uh 20 or 30 or you know one time we had 42 people i think the first time when we had the middle school students and the high school um homeschoolers and the vancouver island university um yep. you know and it was raining and cold but even still and we had to take breaks by the fire but even still we got so much um, done and, and they get to learn about permaculture and hopefully contribute to something that's meaningful in the long term. Yeah. Well, I think tapping into the schools seems like a, a no brainer and like a very good connection to maintain. Do you find it hard to like, if you want to get more schools involved, would you find it hard to get more? What, what do you need to do? Like, do they know what permaculture is? Does that not even matter? They just need like official field trips and they're like, okay, we're in. I don't think it matters. I think just mm -hmm. offering a project. Yeah, they're pretty open to yeah. open out. Yeah, all the schools. So it's the offer more than anything. Well, it's been interesting because you guys kind of started with a, a vision first and you hold the vision and then it seems like you get some people around it and then things begin to materialize rather than like you're kind of saying, um, Jasmine, like the Western approach might be more like we made a big design and then we're going to implement the big design. You kind of went the opposite way. And it seems like a way that can continue to just like evolve and iterate and evolve and iterate. It seems way less stressful than trying to like force a, a big design concept down in like one fell swoop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Plus it's more, it's a more spiritual path, I think, to like stay connected to the land and to the community and just see what happens instead of, being kind of egotistical about this is my design and I'm going to like make it happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Shall I yeah, stop totally. screen sharing here? Oh, you don't have to. I already transitioned back over unless it helps you for like what you're seeing. No, I just want to find where you are. I, you've disappeared, but I guess we don't need to. Oh, have I? Uh, oh, it's on Chrome, I think. There we go. Okay, we're back. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Yeah, that, that's always helpful to be able to see. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the farmer that helps you. You said he was sort of on-site support. He grows some of your trays of vegetables for you. Does he come and like weekly and like help, like, you know, I saw him putting things up vines or like weeding or that sort of thing, or is he more involved in a higher, like he'll get you seedlings and help train people, but he doesn't do the day-to-day weeding no, and planting. First one. So the first year he was okay. coming every Monday afternoon. And usually I would come with my daughter and whoever else, sometimes we'd have other people come and sometimes not, but just for a couple hours. And then sometimes he'd come back in between. Um, I think this past year, it's been a little bit kind of all over the place of not, not such a consistent schedule, but it was, I think that was actually a helpful way that we might re, re resume um, having, you know, a couple hours on Monday afternoons or whatever afternoon um, that then if other people want to join and come help, they can. Um, right. Yeah. He's now, um, he's now working part-time at the Sunrise Waldorf School uh, with me, which is great. So um, it's been oh, easier communicate often. And, and um, when we planted this last spring, we um, did a ton of tomato starts. Another neat collaboration, actually, there's another um, Boots and Roots permaculture farm in the valley. Mm-hmm. And she had extra um, greenhouse space and we didn't have a greenhouse up yet. And so she let us use it. So Cam um, grew tons of tomatoes there, which we sold at the school farm stand to make money for the school garden. And then he mm-hmm. planted tons to plant at the Kohiman garden, as well as at the school garden. So a lot of share the abundance, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And then maybe talk a little bit about, are you all using these spaces in ceremonial engagement or at the deeper level, not just getting out there and gardening, but like having, obviously you have the sweat lodge Have these, has the orchard or the garden been conceived in this way or have the children from the middle schools been brought into the sort of sacred connection or the spiritual connection as well? Well, some some days we do uh, ceremony. We share a song. Sometimes we people out of there working to get them to spread some um, tobacco on the lands mm-hmm. first before. About shared about uh, when people come up and work on their lands that they introduce themselves to the ancestors of the land because you know they're there wondering who's on the land so. Part of the introduction is really important to our people that it's always done in that manner. Now, uh, share that so no one gets hurt because the ancestors know who the people are because they took the time to introduce themselves to to the people from previous generations, and and that's a very strong belief in our in our culture that. That we do that, and so we've done, we've done that with our the working parties, and we don't do a, we don't really get into depth of uh, ceremony, but share share some teachings and ceremonies in that way. Yeah, and what about the permaculture teaching aspect, Jasmine? How does that go? Is that formal, or is that just sort of in the field? They sort of are learning about permaculture as they go. It was it was pretty um, informal until the last one after I did my permaculture training, teacher training. 
um, where mm. I brought it in a little bit more formally. And we're, I'm talking with the teachers this year about um, if possibly doing a, um, maybe 20 weeks or so of structure of giving them some uh, possible projects or, you know, bringing in mm. some of the different permaculture teaching. So we'll, we'll see how that um, works. But if we did that, then we would have a kind of a workbook that they could use in the future. One of my goals is I don't necessarily plan to be there forever. And I would like to make it so that the whole thing is meaningful long-term. So I'm trying to make things yes. very structured and organized so that it's um, easy to access. Even at first I was holding the vision at the school, not not the, the Kohiman one we sh shared, but at the school I was holding this big vision. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just trying to get it more so that the whole community is holding it. Um, That's awesome. And, and part of that would be more formally bringing in permaculture principles and, and teachings, I think. Yes. Well, I had written down a note from our previous conversation, Jasmine, sort of pre-talking about this. And I wrote this and I'm wondering what brings to mind for you both, because um, I'm not really sure the context, but it, it brings to mind a lot for me. And the quote is creating the conditions for successful cross-cultural relationships. Um, especially, I think, with Native American or Native Indigenous populations. You kind of talked about that earlier, how there's sort of a division. And me being like a white European origin, I definitely would be very hesitant to sort of like enter in without invitation into any Native populations or reservations. Um, so how do you, you know, and I'm so glad, Kui Holt, that you invited people in. You took that upon yourself to like invite folks in from wherever there's division and say, let's try to break down these divisions. What would you all say about that idea of breaking down the cross-cultural barriers and not, not how to do it so much, but how to create the conditions or what's the right attitude to have when approaching these things? Well, I think it's important that, you know, we're, you know, if you were to be working in your area, you know, to go to the, to the elders of the tribes in your state yep. and maybe work at getting more involvement in some of the projects around around your area and that's that's what i think i see doing that's happening around here on the island here is a lot of involvement is happening calling calling each other for help mm. and so i really feel that's a big a big part of community building relationship building is is a big part of our permaculture, and if you have good relationships with, uh, with the the human part of it, then it goes and turn to nature, or or vice versa. Mm -hmm. so that's my my uh, thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Yep, beautiful. Thank you. I think, think I just want to mention also that um, when we first connected with the um, permaculture class, that group, um, they had they had like brainstormed tons, tons of ideas of what could be done. Um, and they were all great ideas. And yet, um, I think what he was just saying of like actually talking to the elders of the land and seeing what's needed and then yeah. trying to support that vision um, has been a lot of, and I've done that myself of being like, oh, we could do this and then that and then whatever. And then I'm like, but actually, I don't know if that's what they want. So then I like back off and then connect with Quia Holt, who talks with his siblings and, and other, you know, local family and local elders, and then hearing what's desired or needed and then just doing our best to support that vision um, has been, I think, yeah, is, is important. <laughs> and I, I'm so grateful for the invitation to come be as as are the, the teachers and students to come 
um, have that ongoing relationship. I, I think I mentioned earlier, but it's really different in the past. A lot of middle school classes, I think, would go do a day of service somewhere. But mm. it's a really different thing to have a relationship where you come back, you know, maybe three or four or five times during the school year and then possibly again in the summer or the following school year where you're seeing things evolve and seeing the same people and have an invitation to come back to the same place. Um, yeah. Cause I, I also didn't feel like it was my place to come like explore the reserve, um, you know, unless I was invited to come there. Um, so that, right. yeah, it's very, I feel like it's really generous of you to invite us as an ongoing project. Yeah. I just wanted to mention one of my favorite um, uh, experiences the last couple of years was um, there was a young girl who lives there who saw strawberries and flowers and <laughs> okay. she, and she, um, she said, we were talking about how the strawberries came from the flower and she was in total awe. All those strawberries came from flowers. And then we talked about how all fruit comes from flowers. And then she thought of every fruit she could think of. And we went through plum trees and apple trees, you know, some on bushes, some on trees. And it was just such a beautiful, I mean, I feel like it made the whole project meaningful by itself, just for her to have that beautiful direct connection of eating a strawberry and knowing that it came from a flower. <laughs> yeah, I remember you telling me that story and then me sitting there knowing that full well and being a farmer for many years, but just be being like, wait a minute, I'm eating flowers when I'm eating fruit. Like I hadn't made that connection. So I was like, oh, thank you, middle school girl. You gave me that connection. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Um, well, this is beautiful. Can I do a little, I'm going to call it a commercial. It's really just a, a quick overview of the design contest for anybody listening or watching. So they know what they're up to. And then Jasmine, I'll ask you coming after that, like what you, what might your words of advice be for anybody looking to uh, apply for the Pina design contest? And if you remember, like, was it a hard thing to do? Was it easy? Um, so I'll let you think about that for a second and then I'll just share my screen. And talk just really quickly. If anybody's interested in sharing um, a design with Pina and uh, hoping to get a grand prize to help move it along, like Jasmine's project has done, let's see here. All right. So on the Pina website, you'll see that there's a little tab that says, you know, design contest. You can click on that. When you go here, I just wanted to highlight the fact that there's two prizes that are really important to, to know. There's the top design grand prize, which is $5,000. And then there's a new designer award for $1,000. And that one's for anybody who's completed their permaculture design certificate um, course within the past three years. So if you're kind of new to permaculture, we have a special award for you. And both of those two winners actually also get, and I'm very excited about this, a whole back set of permaculture design magazine, which is like, I don't even know how many, like 60, 70 issues. It's like a $500 value. So so that's fantastic. And we also have a bunch of honorable mentions, which again, just because we have awesome friends and allies within the Pina um, purview, a bunch of people are authors who are also Pina. So you can see here all these different books, Coppice Agroforestry, Edible Landscaping, uh, Paw Paw Primer, which is, I really want that one, uh, Practical Permaculture, Bio Shelter Market Design, Jude Bloom, uh, sorry, Jesse Bloom's Creating Sanctuary and Peter Bain's The Permaculture Handbook. So there's different amounts of each of these books, but honorable mentions for really good designs and really good permacultural thinking. We'll get access to those. And then the last thing, and then I'll, I'll come back to you, Jasmine, 
is everybody who signs up for this year's design competition, whether you get selected or not, receives a premium membership to the Natural Capital Plant Database. And if you've never checked that out, it's at permacultureplantdata.com. And it's just the best that I've seen um, plant database really for the whole North American continent. If you have any type of special ecosystem and you need to know which plants are complementary can fit into a guild, that's the place to go. And the premium membership allows you to actually, I think, create and design guilds within the system. Um, so everybody gets one of those just for signing up for the design contest for the whole year. You get that premium membership. So end of my commercial. Thank you for letting me interrupt. Um, please do consider signing up if anybody has a cool project to sort of further along. Um, and what would you say, Jasmine? Do you think it's easy to do? Was was your process easy? Would you say it's worth it? What would you advise people to consider before signing up? Completely worth it. Even if we hadn't won. Of course, having won, it's... Um, having won helps. <laughs> super worth it. But even that, um, it was the second, my first real... Um, big design for my permaculture course was the school garden. So it was, I, I don't know if I actually would have gone through the steps of doing my layer, my map layers and, you know, yeah. actually thinking like some parts of it I thought of because it's more intuitive or inspiring or easier and some parts that were less familiar to me and took a little bit more work. Um, so it was really great for that to actually spend mm -hmm. the time going through what I'd learned and applying it to a totally different site. Um, um, and in terms of, was it easy? It wasn't. I think the way that it makes it easy <laughs> is, as you mentioned, holding a vision. And that vision largely was like, how can I, how can we be of service to all the communities that we're working with? The yeah. and the local First Nations community, the students the bigger picture of the segregation in the Valley between first nations and settler communities, um, different ages of elders and youth and different age students. So really just holding that bigger vision of all the communities involved and what would be useful, both, both like connecting with each other, connecting with the earth, food sovereignty, discovering that a fruit comes from a flower. <laughs> yes. um, so holding all that vision, I, I'm of I'm of the mind that it's um, more useful to not think about all the things that could be obstacles, but to really just if there were no obstacles, what would what would mm. what would happen, and then write about that, and then um, see what happens, <laughs> and also do yep. the work of reaching out, like to not be shy. I mean, I think one of the things the last uh, five years, I think since I've been in permaculture, um, in a community-based setting, is to just ask, like feel free to talk about the project and, and ask, you know, we've gotten for, for the school garden, we had donated um, beautiful red cedar for raised beds. We had donated fencing, like donated time on an excavator. Also yeah. donated time on an excavator for Quiholtz in the orchard. I was going to do a smaller thing and a, a friend of ours um, said, oh, you should do it a little bigger. And the, this maple tree was rotting. He came and cleared it all and made it probably twice as big or maybe even three times as big as we were going to do because wow. people, people like the vision and want to support it. Um, yes. And I know there's all kinds of other support that I don't even know of, like people that come when I'm not there and will come do a day of weeding or a day of whatever, you know, work. So I, I think just holding the vision and then um, how to be of service in an inspiring and meaningful way. And then, and, and yeah. <laughs> 
and then do the work of like filtering it through the, you know, that permaculture is so structured in terms of, um, I think the bigger vision is the more important part, the heart of it. And then the, you know, going through the steps of what the maps are and, you know, go to the local, you know, planning department, if you need, if they, they have, you know, topographical, just ask for help if you don't know where, where to find stuff and just, um, yeah, stretch and stretch into the areas that maybe we're not familiar with or are a little uncomfortable um, yeah. to use it as a learning experience. Yeah, that's, a, that's great advice. And I would advise people to don't be, you don't have to be some professional designer who's been doing this for years and years in terms of the actual project. It can just be a Google document or pictures or a drawing with a crayon. It's the vision and it's the connections like you're speaking of, Jasmine, that really make it. I mean, obviously your project was so rich with social connections that it was just like, I wasn't even on Pina, but I can imagine, I can see why that project won. Um, and, you know, just try to think beyond just your backyard. It can still be a backyard project, but how are you addressing community? How are you addressing, you know, the watershed and, and doing well by the river, even if it's not on your backyard? Those are the types of things that I think we're looking for. And I love also that you just like, again, you hold the vision and you make the connections and then the resources appear when they're needed. And if they don't, you emerge and you adapt and you change slightly and it's okay too. Maybe that's the way it must, it should work out or something like along those lines. So, so thank you for that. Yes. I would encourage anybody, if you have a project that you're excited about and you're looking ready to get serious about it, please do submit to the Pina Design Contest. We're, we're looking for more submissions close in October. So if you're seeing this past October, well, then they're closed, but the, it'll be coming around next year too. Um, so I think we're kind of near the end. I want to be respectful of your time. Is there any, let's do final words and then any places that you'd like to send um, people like websites or wherever it is that they can maybe support you further. Or if they live out near you, maybe there's a way that they can connect with you in person and help out at the gardens. Um, Kuya Holt, do you want to give your final words or thoughts on that? I'm just uh, thinking about... Um... Our community garden is known as a community project. And sometimes I'll be going, attending a gathering for something else. And then somebody I know of the community project and they'll ask, oh, do you need any help with anything? And so that um, that knowledge is known in the community. So, so that's a continuous um, ongoing service that people know of and they, they offer their help because of that uh, that sense of community building and working together. Yeah. So continuous ongoing service, volunteers is always there all the time through the year. And I always have things to do up our way all the time. So. <laughs> that's yeah, fun. it's like stay involved in your local community and there'll always be projects and there'll always be help. So. Yep. Yep. I, I wanted to mention, I forgot to mention earlier that in terms of CAM, overseeing was a key part to it being successful. But I think mm -hmm. the other key part is that Quioholt lives on site. So I think in mm -hmm. terms of if we were going to recreate this somewhere, having somebody that's really present there, um, that it's their home community, or if it's in a more public space, somebody that's committed to it, maybe that's hired full time, somebody that has a very invested presence yes. in the place, I think. I, is key to the success of it. Um, yeah. Were there were there any questions? In the uh, yes, uh, I would like to hear questions from the from anybody watching live. It looks like we have four people. So if any of you four folks are listening, please send questions.
questions. But no, we haven't received any so far. It's okay. probably just because it's been so captivating that people are just captivated. <laughs> but, you know, Jasmine, you and I talked earlier kind of about the idea of making this a replicable model in a way. Um, and you've given us some of those pieces. But do you have any sort of plans or ideas to, like, put it into, like, a PDF or, an, uh, you know, like some type of, like, here's how I would replicate it and then distribute that information? Maybe not, like, step-by-step -step or checklist, but kind of like that. Any yeah. thoughts on that? That's an interesting idea. Um, I hadn't thought of putting it in a PDF. I have talked with some people. I feel like storytelling is like a timeless part of being human. Yes. I, um, I would like to, I mean, we're doing it with you, which is great. So I was, I was envisioning that one of the next steps would be telling the story of this work so that other people could hear about it um, yes. and that we could support it, whether it's local. We've talked about um, doing something, you know, in a public place here, possibly a little bit up up or down North or South Island um, in some of the other First Nations communities with schools. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of holding that vision and seeing what what really what like grants or people or, you know, what, what the possibilities are. Um, but that could be useful to put something in a PDF. Um, I did, I started well, only go ahead. I was gonna say only if it makes sense and when the time is right, I'm not trying to give you more to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I started to see this, but uh, the, a comment came through. Great presentation. Thank you, Sarah Davis. Appreciate it. And Sarah also says, very inspiring, which I agree. I feel quite inspired. So, and that maybe that's part of the storytelling too, is the inspiration is sometimes the fuel someone else needs to go off and do something similar or, or, you know, like, likewise, like-minded. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not, I guess to answer your question, I'm not sure how it would be replicated, but it is a, a vision that I feel like has really been meaningful on so many different levels of, of everyone involved, you know, people yeah. eating from it, students doing work there, the land getting cared for. Um, yeah, so we're, we're, we're going to continue this year with, um, I think we're going to expand to some of the lower grades four through eight, maybe this year, oh, we might maybe clearing some ivy would be useful. We have other projects that we can continue, um, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure how that will look, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, and some of the keys, it sounds like is having, having the primary site be also a home site or somewhere where somebody is stationed. So they have like that groundedness, literal groundedness. So that seems like a key piece. If anybody wants to try to do a similar thing in this sort of social permaculture design sort of uh, vein. And then the other one is involving middle schoolers or, or local schools. It seems like a really critical piece to your success as well. Yeah. Um, and then it just kind of sounds to me, and maybe I, maybe that's is not true, but it sounds like a lot of those other resources like the farmer and the, 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 the grants and the community showing up just sort of came because you held that vision and then created the, the container of the design. I think that's true. I think the farmer cam, I think, um, you know, Cuyahoga and I, well, it's your vision really originally, and then me supporting it and then Cam joining us. I think the three of us, that those three pillars of me being the contact point with the school, organizing the field trips, mm. Cuyahoga being on site and connected with the local community and Cam having the expertise in farming um, and the three of us really kind of holding the, being very committed to and holding the vision. Um, I think that those are probably the three pillars of, of, if, if somebody was going to try to replicate it, I feel like it doesn't have to be three people, but those are three roles that I think um, have really helped the project. Yeah. 
That sounds totally right on. Sarah asked a question here saying, I live in San Francisco, I think, on Oholen land. I wonder how to, uh, thank you. I wonder how to approach or find tribal elders to ask about working together on uh, sidewalk gardens that we are building. So what might your advice be to approach uh, tribal elders without, you know, of course, with being respectful and, you know, trying to get them maybe interested in your project. I don't know. It might take some time to develop those relationships, but but what would you guys think? Mm. Well, certainly um, building a relationship with uh, someone, one of the elders there first before exploring a project. Yeah, finding out some of their vision and beliefs, what they they want to see, and I think that's uh, a starting point. And working with Jasmine, we both had the same um, beliefs and wants for the future and for the land. And that's kind of how we got started in the beginning, just by planting things together. That kind of just led to. To where we're at today. Mm. I know in the in the San Francisco Bay area, in the East Bay, there's um, the Sagorate Land Trust is a a project of rematriating um, the land, and um, there they they would probably be a good organization to connect with. Um, I think they're doing yeah regenerative agricultural work and connected with local First Nations communities. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it does sound like finding that elder who's who has a shared vision as you is like a first step. Um, the the maybe the elder in the community who's really into plants or really into gardens already, and so it's like, oh, this is just a natural natural fit. Well, I wish you luck, Sarah. Tell us about your work and how it goes. That's awesome. Um, and in terms of uh, people following up, uh, where would I, I have drjasmine.co? For you, Jasmine, is that kind of the best place to keep up on all your work or if people want to work with you in your uh, Chinese medicine, if I got that right, and functional medicine practice, is that the place to go? I I work with a nonprofit that's based in California, both for clinical and permaculture work, and it's um, spelled out threetreasuresinstitute.org. Oh, okay. Um, So that would be probably a better place to connect with. There's, I think there's email contact on there and, and um, information. And I put the, although the projects so far have been based in British Columbia, um, I did put info about um, those different, um, the school garden and the Kohiman garden. And also an additional, um, we did an outdoor classroom that we had grants for. Um, okay. Yeah. So there's information about projects. So, yeah. Yep. And if anybody lives out near you, that you could check that out and maybe join them and put your, put your power behind some of those projects. That sounds great. Well, beautiful. Thank you guys so much. This is really inspiring. I'm so glad to see the success that you've had with and without the Pina grant, of course, working with Pina. I'm so glad that that could help. And I know I've gotten grants too. And I know how much like, wow, that really moved the project along like, you know, a year in advance just to get the one grant. So I'm so glad that you're able to like, you know, use that and benefit from that. If anybody's listening is interested in having a similar experience, do please sign up and show us your design. We'd love to see them all. And, um, Yeah. Thanks guys for your time. I appreciate you both. Thank you. Thank you.